This audio is presented by Hacker Noon, where anyone can learn anything about any technology. The Sacred Beetle, by Jean-Henri Fabre. The Sacred Beetle, and others by Jean-Henri Fabre, is part of the Hacker Noon book series. You can jump to any chapter in this book here. The Sacred Beetle Chapter I The Sacred Beetle. It happened like this. There were five or six of us. Myself, the oldest, officially their master but even more their friend and comrade. They, lads with warm hearts and joyous imaginations, overflowing with that youthful vitality which makes us so enthusiastic and so eager for knowledge. We started off one morning down a path fringed with dwarf elder and hawthorn, whose clustering blossoms were already a paradise for the rose Schaefer ecstatically drinking in their bitter perfumes. We talked as we went. We were going to see whether the sacred beetle had yet made his appearance on the sandy plateau of Les Angles, one whether he was rolling that pellet of dung in which ancient Egypt beheld an image of the world, we were going to find out whether the stream at the foot of the hill was not hiding under its mantle of duckweed young newts with gills like tiny branches of coral, whether that pretty little fish of orivulets, the stickleback, had donned his wedding scarf of purple and blue, whether the newly arrived swallow was skimming the meadows on pointed wing, chasing the crane flies, who scatter their eggs as they dance through the air, if the eyed lizard was sunning his blue speckled body on the threshold of a burrow dug in the sandstone, if the laughing gull, traveling from the sea in the wake of the legions of fish that ascend the Rhone to milt in its waters, washovering in his hundreds over the river, ever and anon uttering his cry so like he a maniac's laughter, if, but that will do. To be brief, let us say that, like good simple folk who find pleasure in all living things, we were off to spend a morning at the most wonderful of festivals, life's springtime awakening. Our expectations were fulfilled. The stickleback was dressed in his best. His scales would have paled the luster of silver, his throat was flashing with the brightest vermilion. On the approach of the great black horse leech, the spines on his back and side started up, as though worked by a spring. In the face of this resolute altitude, the bandit turns tail and slips ignominiously down among the water weeds. The placid mollusk tribe, planorbs, limnae and other water snails, were sucking in the air on the surface of the water. The hydrophilus and her hideous larva, those pirates of the ponds, darted amongst them, wringing a neck or two as they passed. The stupid crowd did not seem a vento notice it, but let us leave the plain and its waters and clamber up the bluff to the plateau above us. Up there, sheep are grazing and horses being exercised for the approaching races, while all are distributing manna to the enraptured dung beetles. Here are the scavengers at work, the beetles whose proud mission it is to purgeth soil of its filth. One would never weary of admiring the variety of tools wherewith they are supplied, whether for shifting, cutting up and shaping thesser coral matter or for excavating deep burrows in which they will seclude themselves with their booty. This equipment resembles a technical museum where every digging implement is represented. It includes things that seem copied from those appertaining to human industry and others of so original a type that they might well serve us as models for new inventions. The Spanish copras carries on his forehead a powerful pointed horn, curved backwards, like the long blade of a mattock. In addition to a similar horn, The lunary copris has two strong spikes, curved like a plowshare, springing from the thorax and also, between the two, a jagged protuberance which does duty as a broad rake. Bubba's bubalus and b. bison, both exclusively Mediterranean species, have their forehead armed with two stout diverging horns, between which juts a horizontal dagger, supplied by the corslet. Minotaurus typhoeus carries on the front of his thorax three plowshares, which stick straight out, parallel to another, the side ones longer than the middle one. The bull onthophagus hasses his tool two long curved pieces that remind us of the horns of a bull. The cow onthophagus, on the other hand, has a two-pronged fork standing erect on his flathead. Even the poorest have, 
either on their head or on their corslet, hard knobs that make implements which the patient insect can turn to good use, notwithstanding their bluntness. All are supplied with a shovel, that is to say, they have a broad, flat head with a sharp edge. All use a rake, that is to say, they collect materials with their toothed forelegs. As some sort of compensation for their unsavory task, several of them give out a powerful scent of musk, while their bellies shine like polished metal. The mimic geotropes has gleams of copper and gold beneath, the stercoraceous geotropes has a belly of amethystine violet. But generally their coloring is black. The dung beetles in gorgeous raiment, those veritable living gems, belong to the tropics. Upper Egypt can show us under its camel dung a beetle rivaling the emerald's brilliant green. Guiana, Brazil and Senegambia boast of that are a metallic red, rich as copper and ruby bright. The dung beetles of our climes cannot flaunt such jewelry, but they are no less remarkable for their habits. What excitement over a single patch of cow dung! Never did adventurers hurrying from the four corners of the earth display such eagerness in working a Californian claim. Before the sun becomes too hot, they are there in their hundreds, large and small, of every sort, shape and size, hastening to carvet themselves a slice of the common cake. There are some that labor in the open air and scrape the surface, there are others that dig themselves galleries in the thick of the heap, in search of choice veins, some work the lower stratum and bury their spoil without delay in the ground just below. Others again, the smallest, keep on one side and crumble a morsel that has slipped their way during the mighty excavations of their more powerful fellows. Some, newcomer sand doubtless the hungriest, consume their meal on the spot, but the greater number dream of accumulating stocks that will allow them to spend long days in affluence, down in some safe retreat. A nice, fresh patch of dung is not found just when you want it, in the barren plains overgrown with time. A windfall of this sort is as manna from the sky. Only fortune's favorites receive so fair a portion. Wherefore the riches of today are prudently hoarded for the morrow. The stercoraceous scent has carried the glad tidings half a mile around, and all have hastened up to get a store of provisions. A few laggards are still arriving, on the wing or on foot. Who is this that comes trotting towards the heap, fearing lest he reach it too late? His long legs move with awkward jerks, as though driven by some mechanism within his belly, his little red antennae unfurl their fan, a sign of anxious greed. He is coming, he has come, not without sending a few banqueters sprawling. It is the sacred beetle, clad all in black, the biggest and most famous of our dung beetles. Behold him at table, beside his fellow guests, each of whom is giving the last touches to his ball with the flat of his broad forelegs or else enriching it with yet one more layer before retiring to enjoy the fruit of his labors in peace. Let us follow the construction of the famous ball in all its phases. The clippius, or shield, that is the edge of the broad, flat head, is notched with six angular teeth arranged in a semicircle. This constitutes the tool for digging and cutting up. The rake that lifts and casts aside the unnutritious vegetable fibers, goes for something better, scrapes and collects it. The choice is thus made, for these connoisseurs differentiate between one thing and another, making a rough selection when the beetle is occupied with his own provender, but an extremely scrupulous one when it is a matter of constructing the maternal ball which has a central cavity in which the egg will hatch. The nevery scrap of fiber is conscientiously rejected and only the stir-coral quintessence is gathered as the material for building the inner layer of the cell. The young larva, on issuing from the egg, thus finds in the very walls ofits lodging a food of special delicacy which strengthens its digestion and enables it afterwards to attack the coarse outer layers. Where his own needs are concerned, the beetle is less particular and content himself with a very general sorting. The notched shield then does its scooping and digging, its casting aside and scraping together more or less at random. The four legs play a mighty part in the work. 
They are flat, bow-shaped, supplied with powerful nervures and armed on the outside with five strong teeth. If a vigorous effort be needed to remove an obstacle or to force a way through the thickest part of the heap, the dung beetle makes use of his elbows, that is tose, he flings his toothed legs to right and left and clears a semicircular space with an energetic sweep. Room once made, a different kind of work is found for these same limbs. They collect armfuls of the stuff raked together by the shield and push it under the insect's belly, between the four hinder legs. The seer formed for the turner's trade. They are long and slender, especially the last pair, slightly bowed and finished with a very sharp claw. They are at once recognized as compasses, capable of embracing a globular body in their curved branches and of verifying and correcting its shape. Their function is, in fact, to fashion the ball. Armful by armful, the material is heaped up under the belly, between the four legs, which, by a slight pressure, impart their own curve to it and give it a preliminary outline. Then, every now and again, the rough-hewn pill is set spinning between the four branches of the double pair of spherical compasses, it turns under the dung beetle's belly until it is rolled into a perfect ball. Should the surface layer lack plasticity and threaten to peel off, should some too stringy part refuse to yield to the action of the lathe, the four legs touch up the faulty places, their broad paddles pat the ball to give consistency to the new layer and to work the recalcitrant bits into the mass. Under a hot sun, when time presses, one stands amazed at the turner's feverish activity. And so the work proceeds apace. What a moment ago was a tiny pellet is now a ball the size of a walnut, soon it will be the size of an apple. I have seen some gluttons manufacture a ball the size of a man's fist. This indeed means food in the larder for days to come. The beetle has his provisions. The next thing is to withdraw from the fray and transport the vittles to a suitable place. Here the scarab's most striking characteristics begin to show themselves. Straightway he begins his journey, hecklasps his sphere with his two long hind legs, whose terminal claws, planted in the mass, serve as pivots, he obtains a purchase with the middle pair of legs, and, with his toothed forearms, pressing in turn upon the ground, to do duty as levers, he proceeds with his load, he himself moving backwards, body bent, head down and hind quarters in the air. The rear legs, the principal factor in the mechanism, are in continual movement backwards and forwards, shifting the clostow change the axis of rotation, to keep the load balanced and to push it along the alternate thrusts to right and left. In this way the ball finds itself touching the ground by turns with every point of its surface, a process which perfects its shape and gives an even consistency to its outer layer by means of pressure uniformly distributed. And now to work with a will. The thing moves, it begins to roll. We shall get there, though not without difficulty. Here is a first awkward place. The beetleus wending his way athwart a slope and the heavy mass tends to follow the incline. The insect, however, for reasons best known to itself, prefers to cut across this natural road, a bold project which may be brought to naught by a false step or by a grain of sand that disturbs the balance of the load. The false step is made. Down goes the ball to the bottom of the valley, and the insect, toppled over by the shock, is lying on its back, kicking. It is soon oop again and hastens to harness itself once more to its load. The machine works bitter than ever. But look out, you dunderhead. Follow the dip of the valley. That will save labor and mishaps. The road is good and level. Your ball will roll quite easily. Not a bit of it. The beetle prepares once again to mount the slope that has already been his undoing. Perhaps it suits him to return to the heights. Against that I have nothing to say. The scarab's judgment is better than mine as to the advisability of keeping to lofty regions. He can see farther than I can in these matters. But at least take this path, which will lead you UPBY a gentle incline. Certainly not. Let him find himself near some very steep slope, impossible to climb, 
and that is the very path which the obstinate fellow will choose. Now begins a Sisyphean labor. The ball, that enormous burden, is painfully hoisted, step by step, with infinite precautions, to a certain height, always backwards. We wonder by what miracle of statics a mass of this size can be kept upon the slope. Oh, an ill-advised movement frustrates all this toil. The ball rolls down, dragging the beetle with it. Once more the heights are rescaled and another fall is the sequel. The attempt is renewed, with graders killed this time at the difficult points. A wretched grass root, the cause of the previous falls, is carefully got over. We are almost there, but steady now, steady. It is a dangerous ascent and the merest trifle may yet ruin everything. For see, a leg slips on a smooth bit of gravel. Down come ball and beetle, all mixed up together. And the insect begins over again, with indefatigable obstinacy. Ten times, twenty times, he will attempt the hopeless ascent, until his persistence vanquishes all obstacles, or until, wisely recognizing the futility of his efforts, he adopts the level road. The scarab does not always push his precious ball alone. Sometimes he takes a partner, or, to be accurate, the partner takes him. This is the way in which things usually happen. Once his ball is ready, a dung beetle issues from the crowd and leaves the workyard, pushing his prize backwards. A neighbor, a newcomer, whose own task is hardly begun, abruptly drops his work and runs toth moving ball, to lend a hand to the lucky owner, who seems to accept the proffered aid kindly. Henceforth the two work in partnership. Each does his best to push the pellet to a place of safety. Was a compact really concluded in the workyard? A tacit agreement to share the cake between them? While one was kneading and molding the ball, was the other tapping rich veins whence to extract choice materials and add them to the common store? I have never observed any such collaboration. I have always seen each dung beetle occupied solely with his own affairs in the works. The last comer, therefore, has no acquired rights. Can it then be a partnership between the two sexes, a couple intending to set up house? I thought so for a time. The two beetles, one before, one behind, pushing the heavy ball with equal fervor, reminded me of a song which the hurdy-gurdies used to grind out some years ago, Pour Monter Notre Ménage, Ellis. Comment Ferrand's news, Toy devant at moi derrière, nous pousserons le tonneau. To the evidence of the scalpel compelled me to abandon my belief in this domestic idol. There is no outward difference between the two sexes in the scarabai. It therefore dissected the pair of dung beetles engaged in trundling one in the same ball, and they very often proved to be of the same sex. Neither community of family nor community of labor. Then what is the motive for this apparent partnership? It is purely and simply an attempt at robbery. The zealous fellow worker, on the false plea of lending a helping hand, cherishes a plan to purloin the ball at the first opportunity. To make one's own ball at the heap means hard work and patience. To steal one ready-made, or at least to foist oneself as a guest, is a much easier matter. Should the owner's vigilance slacken, you can run away with his property. Should you be too closely watched, you can sit down to table uninvited, pleading services rendered. It is, heads I win, tails you lose, in these tactics, so that pillage is practiced as one of the most lucrative of trades. Some go to work craftily, in the way which I have described. They come to the aid of a comrade who has not the least need of the mond hide the most barefaced greed under the cloak of charitable assistance. Others, bolder perhaps, more confident in their strength, go straight to their goal and commit robbery with violence. Scenes are constantly happening such as this. A scarab goes off, peacefully, by himself, rolling his ball, his lawful property, acquired by conscientious work. Another comes flying up, I know not whence, drops down heavily, folds his dingy wings under their cases in, with the back of his toothed forearms, knocks over the owner, who is powerless to ward off the attack in his awkward position, 
harnessed as he is to his property. While the victim struggles to his feet, the other perches himself atop the ball, the best position from which to repel an assailant. With his forearms crossed over his breast, ready to hit back, he waits events. The dispossessed one moves round the ball, seeking a favorable spot at which to make the assault. The usurper spins round on the roof of the citadel, facing his opponent all the time. If the latter raise himself in order to scale the wall, the robber gives him a blow that stretches him on his back. Safe at the top of his fortress, the besieged beetle could foil his adversary's attempts indefinitely if the latter did not change his tactics. He turns Saperso as to reduce the citadel with the garrison. The ball, shaken from below, totters and begins rolling, carrying with it the thieving dung beetle, who makes violent efforts to maintain his position on the top. This he succeeds in doing, though not invariably, thanks to hurried gymnastic feats which land him higher on the ball and make up for the ground which he loses by its rotation. Should a false movement bring him to earth, the chances become equal and the struggle turns into a wrestling match. Robber and Rob grapple with each other, breast to breast. Their legs lock and unlock, their joints intertwine, their horny armor clashes in grates with the rasping sound of metal under the file. Then the one who succeeds in throwing his opponent and releasing himself scrambles to the top of the ball and there takes up his position. The siege is renewed, now by the robber, now by the robbed, as the chances of the hand-to-hand conflict may decree. The former, a brawny desperado, no novice at the game, often has the best of the fight. Then, after two or three unsuccessful attempts, the defeated beetle wearies and returns philosophically to the heap, to make himself a new pellet. As for the other, with all fear of a surprise attack at an end, he harnesses himself to the conquered ball and pushes it whither he pleases. I have sometimes seen a third thief appear upon the scene and rob the robber. Nor can I honestly say that I was sorry. I ask myself in vain what Proudhon III introduced into Scarabian morality the daring paradox that property means plunder, or what diplomatist taught the dung beetle the savage maxim that might is right. I have no data that would enable me to trace the origin of these spoliations, which have become a custom, of this abuse of strength to capture a lump of ordure. All that I can say is that theft is a general practice among the scarabs. These dung rollers rob one another with a calm effrontery which, to my knowledge, is without a parallel. I leave it to future observers to elucidate this curious problem in animal psychology and I go back to the two partners rolling their ball in concert. But first let me dispel a current error in the textbooks. I find in M. Emil Blanchard's four magnificent work, Metamorphoses, Mowers et Instincts des Insects, the following passage, sometimes our insect is stopped by an insurmountable obstacle, the ball has fallen into a hole. At such moments the Atukas 5 gives evidence of a really astonishing grasp of the situation as well as of a system of ready communication between individuals of the same species which is even more remarkable. Recognizing the impossibility of coaxing the ball out of the hole, the Atuku seems to abandon it and flies away. If you are sufficiently endowed with that great and noble virtue called patience, stay by the forsaken ball. After a while, the Atukas will return to the same spot and will not return alone. He will be accompanied by two, three, four or five companions, who will all alight at the place indicated and will combine their efforts to raise the load. The Atukas has been to fetch reinforcements, and this explains why it is such a common sight, in the dry fields, to see several Atuki joining in the removal of a single ball. Lastly, I read in Eliger's six entomological magazine, a Gymnoplorus pillularius, seven while constructing the ball of dung destined to contain her eggs, let it roll into a hole, whence she strove for a long time to extract it unaided. Finding that she was wasting her time in vain efforts, Sharon to a neighboring heap of manure to fetch three individuals of her own species, who, uniting their strength to hers, 
succeeded in withdrawing the ball from the cavity into which it had fallen and then returned to their manure to continue their work. I crave a thousand pardons of my illustrious master, M. Blanchard, but things certainly do not happen as he says. To begin with, the two accounts are so much alike that they must have had a common origin. Illiger, on the strength of observations not continuous enough to deserve blind confidence, put forward the case of his gymnoplorus, and the same story was repeated about the scarabaei because it is, in fact, quite usual to see two of these insects occupied together either in rolling a ball or in getting it out of a troublesome place. But this cooperation in no way proves that the dung beetle who found himself in difficulties went to requisition the aid of his mates. I have had no small measure of the patience recommended by M. Blanchard. I have lived laborious days in close intimacy, if I may say so, with the sacred beetle. I have done everything that I could think of in order to enter as thoroughly as possible into his ways and habits and to study them from life, and I have never seen anything that suggested either nearly or remotely the idea of companions summoned to lend assistance. As I shall presently relate, I have subjected the dung beetle to far more serious trials than that of getting his ball into a hole. I have confronted him with much graver difficulties than that of mounting a slope, which is sheer sport to the obstinate Sisyphus, who seems to delight in the rough gymnastics involved in climbing steep places, as if the ball thereby grew firmer and accordingly increased in value. I have created artificial situations in which the insect had the uttermost need of help, and never did my eyes detect any evidence of friendly services rendered by comrade to comrade. I have seen beetles robbed and beetles robbing and nothing more. If a number of them were gathered around the same pill, it meant that a battle was taking place. My humble opinion, therefore, is that the incident of a number of scarabai collected around the same ball with thieving intentions has given Risetto these stories of comrades called in to lend a hand. Imperfect observations are responsible for this transformation of the bold highwayman into a helpful companion who has left his work to do another a friendly turn. It is no light matter to attribute to an insect a really astonishing grasp of a situation, combined with an even more amazing power of communication between individuals of the same species. Such an admission involves more than one imagines. That is why I insist on my point. What? Are we to believe that a beetle in distress will conceive the idea of going in quest of help? We are to imagine him flying off and scouring the country to find fellow workers on some patch of dung. When he has found them, we are to suppose that he addresses them, in a sort of pantomime, by gestures with his antennae more particularly, in some such words as these, I say, you fellows, my load's upset in a hole over there, come and help me get it out. I'll do as much for you one day, and we are to believe that his comrades understand. And, more incredible still, that they straightway leave their work, the pellet which they have just begun, the beloved pill exposed to the cupidity of others and certain to be filched in their absence, and go to the help of the suppliant. I am profoundly incredulous of such unselfishness, and my incredulity is confirmed by what I have witnessed Ed for years and years, not in glass cases but in the very places where the scarab works. Apart from its maternal solicitude, in which respect it is nearly always admirable, the insect cares for nothing but itself, unless it lives in societies, like the hive bees, the ants and the rest. But let me end this digression, which is excused by the importance of the subject. I was saying that a sacred beetle, in possession of a ball which he ice-pushing backwards, is often joined by another, who comes hurrying up to lend an assistance which is anything but disinterested, his intention being to rob his companion if the opportunity present itself. Let us call the two workers partners, though that is not the proper name for them, seeing that the one forces himself upon the other, who probably accepts outside help only for fear of a worse evil. The meeting, by the way, is absolutely peaceful. The owner of the ball does not cease work for an instant on the arrival of the newcomer. Andy's uninvited assistant seems animated by the best intentions and sets to work on the spot. 
the way in which the two partners harness themselves differs. The proprietor occupies the chief position, the place of honor. He pushes at the rear, with his hind legs in the air and his head down. His subordinate is in front, in the reverse posture, head up, toothed arms on the ball, long hind legs in the ground. Between the two, the ball rolls along, one driving it before him, the other pulling it towards him. The efforts of the couple are not always very harmonious, the more so as the assistant has his back to the road to be traversed, while the owner's view is simpeted by the load. The result is that they are constantly having accidents, absurd tumbles, taken cheerfully and in good part. Each picks himself up quickly and resumes the same position as before. On level ground this system of traction does not correspond with the dynamic force expended, through lack of precision in the combined movements, the scarab at the back would do as well and better if left to himself. And so the helper, having given a proof of his goodwill at the risk of throwing the machinery out of gear, now decides to keep still, without letting go of the precious ball, of course. He already looks upon that as his, a ball touched as a ball gained. He won't be so silly as not to stick to it. The other might give him the slip, so he gathers his legs flat under his belly, encrusting himself, so to speak, on the ball and becoming one with it. Henceforth, the whole concern, the ball and the beetle clinging to its surface, is rolled along by the efforts of the lawful owner. The intruder sits tight and lies low, heedless whether the load pass over his body, whether he be at the top, bottom or side of the rolling ball. A queer sort of assistant, who gets a free ride so as to make sure of his share of the vittles, but a steep ascent heaves in sight and gives him a fine part to play. He takes the lead now, holding up the heavy mass with his tooth arms, while his mate seeks a purchase in order to hoist the load a little higher. In this way, by a combination of well-directed efforts, the beetle above gripping, the one below pushing, I have seen a couple mount hills which would have been too much for a single carter, however persevering. But in times of difficulty not all show the same zeal. There are some who, on awkward slopes where their assistance is most needed, seem blissfully unaware of the trouble. While the unhappy Sisyphus exhausts himself in attempts to get over the bad part, the other quietly leaves shim to it. Embedded in the ball, he rolls down with it if it comes to grief and is hoisted up with it when they start afresh. I have often tried the following experiment on the two partners in order to judge their inventive faculties when placed in a serious predicament. Suppose them to be on level ground, number two seated motionless on the ball, number one busy pushing. Without disturbing the latter, I nail the ball to the ground with a long, strong pin. It stops suddenly. The beetle, unaware of my perfidy, doubtless believes that some natural obstacle, a rut, a tuft of couch grass, a pebble, bars the way. He redoubles his efforts, struggles his hardest, nothing happens. What can the matter be? Let's go and see. The beetle walks two or three times round his pellet. Discovering nothing to account for its immobility, he returns to the rear and starts pushing again. The ball remains stationary. Let's look up above. The beetle goes up, to find nothing but his motionless colleague, for I had taken care to drive in the pin so deep that the head disappeared in the ball. He explores the whole upper surface and comes down again. Fresh thrusts are vigorously applied in front and at the sides, with the same absence of success. There is not a doubt about it. Never before was dung beetle confronted with such a problem in inertia. Now is the time, the very time, to claim assistance, which is all the easier ashes mate is there, close at hand, squatting on the summit of the ball. Will the scarab rouse him? Will he talk to him like this? What are you doing there, lazybones? Come and look at the thing. It's broken down. Nothing proves that he does anything of the kind, for I see him steadily shaking the unshakable, inspecting his stationary machine on every side, while all this time his companion sits resting. At long last, however, 
The latter becomes aware that something unusual is happening. He is apprised of it by his mate's restless tramping and by the immobility of the ball. He comes down, therefore, and in his turn examines the machine. Double harness does no better than single harness. This is beginning to look serious. The little fans of the Beatles' antennae open and shut, open again, betraying by their agitation acute anxiety. Then a stroke of genius ends the perplexity. Who knows what's underneath? They now start exploring below the ball, and a little digging soon reveals the presence of the pin. They recognize at once that the trouble is there. If I had had a voice in their deliberations, I should have said, we must make a hole in the ball and pull out that skewer which is holding it down. This most elementary of all proceedings and one so easy to such expert diggers was not adopted, was not even tried. The dung beetle was shrewder than man. The two colleagues, one on this side, one on that, slip under the ball, which Bagisto slide up the pin, getting higher and higher in proportion as the living wedges make their way underneath. The clever operation is made possible by the softness of the material, which gives easily and makes a channel under the head of the immovable stake. Soon the pellet is suspended at a height equal to the thickness of the scarab's bodies. The rest is not such plain sailing. The dung beetles, who at first were lying flat, rise gradually to their feet, still pushing with their backs. The work becomes harder and harder as the legs, in straightening out, lose their strength, but nonetheless they do it. Then comes a time when they can no longer push with their backs, the limit of their height having been reached. A last resource remains, but one much less favorable toth development of motive power. This is for the insect to adopt one or other OFITS postures when harnessed to the ball, head down or up, and to push with its shined or four legs, as the case may be. Finally the ball drops to the ground, unless we have used too long a pin. The gash made by our stake is repaired, more or less, and the carting of the precious pellet is at once resumed. But, should the pin really be too long, then the ball, which remains firmly fixed, ends by being suspended at a height above that of the insect's full stature. In that case, after vain evolutions around the unconquerable greased pole, the dung beetles throw up the sponge, unless we are sufficiently kind-hearted to finish the work ourselves and restore their treasure to them. Or again we can help them by raising the floor with a small flat stone, a pedestal from the top of which it is possible for the beetle to continue his labors. Itsusi does not appear to be immediately understood, for neither of the two is in any hurry to take advantage of it. Nevertheless, by accident or design, one or other at last finds himself on the stone. Oh, joy. As he passed, he felt the ball touch his back. At that contact, courage returns, and his efforts begin once more. Standing on his helpful platform, the scarab stretches his joints, rounds his shoulders, as one might say, and shoves the pellet upwards. When his shoulders no longer avail, he works with his legs, now upright, now head downwards. There is a fresh pause, accompanied by fresh signs of uneasiness, when the limit of extension is reached. Thereupon, without disturbing the creature, we place a second little stone on the top of the first. With the AIDOF this new step, which provides a fulcrum for its levers, the insect pursues its task. Thus adding story upon story is required. I have seen the scarab, hoisted to the summit of a tottering pile three or four fingers breadth in height, persevere in his work until the ball was completely detached. Had he some vague consciousness of the service performed by the gradual raising of the pedestal? I venture to doubt it, though he cleverly took advantage of my platform of little stones. As a matter of fact, if the very elementary idea of using a higher support in order to reach something placed above one's grasp were not beyond the beetle's comprehension, how is it that, when there are two of them, neither thinks of lending the other his back so as to raise him by that much and make it possible for him to go on working? If one helped the other in this way, they could reach twice as high. 
They are very far, however, from any such cooperation. Each pushes the ball, with all his might, I admit, but he pushes as if he were alone and seems to have no notion of the happy result that would follow a combined effort. In this instance, when the ball is nailed to the ground by a pin, they do exactly what they do in corresponding circumstances, as, for example, when the load is brought to a standstill by some obstacle, caught in a loop of couch grass or transfixed by some spiky bit of stock thoth is run into the soft, rolling mass. I produced artificially a stoppage which is not really very different from those occurring naturally when the ball is being rolled amid the thousand and one irregularities of the ground, and the beetle behaves, in my experimental tests, as he would have behaved in any other circumstances in which I had no part. He uses his back as a wedge and a lever and pushes with his feet, without introducing anything new into his methods, even when he has a companion and can avail himself of his assistance. When he is all alone in face of the difficulty, when he has no assistant, his dynamic operations remain absolutely the same, and his efforts to move his transfixed ball end in success, provided that we give him the indispensable support of a platform, built up little by little. If we deny him this sucker, then, no longer encouraged by the contact of his beloved ball, he loses heart and sooner or later flies away, doubtless with many regrets, and disappears. Where to? I do not know. What I do know is that he does not return with a gang of fellow laborers whom he has begged to help him. What would he do with them, he who cannot make use of even one comrade? But perhaps my experiment, which leaves the ball suspended at an inaccessible height and the insect with its means of action exhausted, is a little too far removed from ordinary conditions. Let us try instead a miniature pit, deep enough and steep enough to prevent the dung beetle, when placed at the bottom, from rolling his load up the side. These are exactly the conditions stated by Messrs. Blanchard and Illiger. Well, what happens? When dogged but utterly fruitless efforts have convinced him of his helplessness, the beetle takes wing and disappears. Relying upon what these learned writers said, I have waited long hours for the insect to return reinforced by a few friends. I have always waited in vain. Many a time also I have found the pellet several days later just where I left it, stuck at the top of a pin or in a hole, proving that nothing fresh odd happened in my absence. A ball abandoned from necessity is a ball abandoned for good, with no attempt at salvage with the aid of others. A dexterous use of wedge and lever to set the ball rolling again is therefore, when all is said, the greatest intellectual effort which I have observed in the sacred beetle. To make up for what the experiment refutes, namely, an appeal for help among fellow workers, I gladly chronicle this feat of mechanical prowess for the dung beetle's greater glory. Directing their steps at random, over sandy plains thick with thyme, overcart ruts and steep places, the two beetle brethren roll the ball along for some time, thus giving its substance a certain consistency which may be to their liking. While still on the road, they select a favorable spot. The rightful owner, the beetle who throughout has kept the place of honor, behind the ball, the one in short who has done almost all the carting by himself, sets to work to dig the dining room. Beside him is the ball, with number two clinging to it, shamming dead. Number one attacks the sand with his sharp-edged forehead and his toothed legs, he flings armfuls of it behind him, and the work of excavating proceeds apace. Soon the beetle has disappeared from view in the half-dug cavern. Whenever he returns to the upper air with a load, he invariably glances at his ball to see if all is well. From time to time he brings it nearer the threshold of the burrow, he feels it and seems to acquire new vigor from the contact. The other, lying demure and motionless on the ball, continues to inspire confidence. Meanwhile the underground hall grows larger and deeper, and The Digger's field of operations is now too vast for any but very occasional appearances. Now is the time. The crafty sleeper awakens and hurriedly decamps with the ball, which he pushes behind him with the speed of a pickpocket anxious not to be caught in the act. 
This breach of trust rouses my indignation, but the historian triumphs for the moment over the moralist and I leave him alone. I shall have time enough to intervene on the side of law and order if things threaten to turn out badly. The thief is already some yards away. His victim comes out of the burrow, looks around and finds nothing. Doubtless an old hand himself, he knows what this means. Scent and sight soon put him on the track. He makes haste and catches up the robber, but the artful dodger, when he feels his pursuer close on his heels, promptly changes his posture, gets on his hind legs and clasps the ball with his toothed arms, as he does when acting as an assistant. You rogue, you, I see through your tricks. You mean to plead as an excuse that the pellet rolled down the slope and that you are only trying to stop it and be ringed back home. I, however, an impartial witness, declare that the ball was steady at the entrance to the burrow and did not roll of its own accord. Besides, the ground is level. I declare that I saw you set the thing in motion and make off with unmistakable intentions. It was an attempt at larceny, or I've never seen one. My evidence is not admitted. The owner cheerfully accepts the other's excuses, and the two bring the ball back to the burrow as though nothing had happened. If the thief, however, has time to get far enough away, or if he manages to cover his trail by adroitly doubling back, the injury is irreparable. To collect provisions under a blazing sun, to cart them a long distance, to dig a calm fordable banqueting hall in the sand, and then, just when everything is ready in your appetite, wetted by exercise, lends an added charm to the approaching feast, suddenly to find yourself cheated by a crafty partner is, it must be admitted, a reverse of fortune that would dishearten most of us. The dung beetle does not allow himself to be cast down by this piece of ill luck. He rubs his cheeks, spreads his antennae, sniffs the air and flies to the nearest heap tobogan all over again. I admire and envy this cast of character. Suppose the scarab fortunate enough to have found a loyal partner, or, better still, suppose that he has met no self-incited companion. The burrow is ready. It is a shallow cavity, about the size of one's fist, dug in soft earth, usually in sand, and communicating with the outside by a short passage just wide enough to admit the ball. As soon as the provisions are safely stored away, the scarab shuts himself in by stopping up the entrance to his dwelling with rubbish kept in a corner for the purpose. Once the door is closed, nothing outside betrays the existence of the banqueting chamber. And, now, hail mirth and jollity. Alice for the best in the best of all possible worlds. The table is sumptuously spread. The ceiling tempers the heat of the sun and allows only a moist and gentle warmth to penetrate. The undisturbed quiet, the darkness, the crickets a concert overhead are all pleasant aids to digestion. So complete has been the illusion that I have caught myself listening at the door, expecting to hear the revelers burst into the famous snatch in Galate. 8 ah. Qu'il est du dîner rien faire, quand tout se guide autour de nous. 9 who would dare disturb the bliss of such a banquet? But the desire for knowledge is capable of all things, and I had the necessary daring. I will set down Harith result of my violation of the home. The ball by itself fills almost the whole room. The rich repast rises from floor to ceiling. A narrow passage runs between it and the walls. Here sit the banqueters, two at most, very often only one, belly to table, back to the wall. Once the seat is chosen, no one stirs, all the vital forces are absorbed by the digestive faculties. There is no fidgeting, which might mean the loss of a mouthful, no dainty toying with the food, which might cause some to be wasted. Everything has to pass through, properly and in order. To see them seated so solemnly around a ball of dung, one would think that they were conscious of their function as cleansers of the earth and that they were deliberately devoting themselves to that marvelous chemistry which out of filth brings forth the flower that delights our eyes and the beetle's wing case that jewels our lawns in spring. For this supreme work which turns into living matter the refuse which neither the horse nor the mule can utilize, 
Despite the perfection of their digestive organs, the dung beetle must needs be specially equipped. And indeed anatomy compels us to admire the prodigious length of his coiled intestine, which slowly elaborates the materials in its manifold windings and exhausts them to the very last serviceable atom. Matter from which the ruminant's stomach could extract nothing, yields to this powerful alembic riches that, at a mere touch, are transmuted into aben male in the sacred scarab and a breastplate of gold and rubies in other dung beetles. Now this wonderful metamorphosis of ordure has to be accomplished in the shortest possible time, the public health demands it. And so the scarab is endowed with matchless digestive powers. Once housed in the company of food, he goes on eating and digesting, day and night, until the provisions are exhausted. There is no difficulty in proving this. Open the cell to which the dung beetle has retired from the world. At any hour of the day, we shall find the insect seated at table and, behind it, still hanging to it, a continuous cord, roughly coiled like a pile of cables. One can easily guess, without embarrassing explanations, what this cord represents. The great ball of dung passes mouthful be mouthful through the beetle's digestive canals, yielding up its nutritive essences, and reappears at the opposite end spun into a cord. Well, this unbroken cord, which is always found hanging from the aperture of the draw plate, is ample proof, without further evidence, that the digestive processes go on without ceasing. When the provisions are coming to an end, the cable unrolled as of an astounding length, it can be measured in feet. Where's hall we find the like of this stomach which, to avoid any loss when life's balance sheet is made out, feasts for a week or a fortnight, without stopping, on such distasteful fare. When the whole ball has passed through the machine, the hermit comes back to the daylight, tries his luck afresh, finds another patch of dung, fashions a new ball and starts eating again. This life of pleasure lasts for a month or two, from May to June. Then, with the coming of the fierce heat beloved of the Kakaday, ten the sacred beetles take up their summer quarters and bury themselves in the cool earth. They reappear with the first autumn rains, less numerous and less active than in spring, but now seemingly absorbed in the most important work of all, the future of the species. About Hacker Noon book series, we bring you the most important technical, scientific, and insightful public domain books. This book is part of the public domain. Jean-Henri Fabre, 2022. The Sacred Beetle, and Others. Urbana, Illinois. Project Gutenberg. Retrieved October HTTPS colon slash slash www.gutenberg.org, cache, EPUB, 66743, PG 66743 images. HTML This ebook is for the use of anyone anywhere at no cost and with almost no restrictions whatsoever. You may copy it, give it away or reuse it under the terms of the Project Gutenberg license included with this ebook or online at www.gutenberg.org. Located at https colon slash slash www.gutenberg.org. Policy. License. HTML. Thank you for listening to this Hackernoon story, read by Artificial Intelligence. Visit hackernoon.com to read, write, learn and publish. Dot.